Welcome to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shebb. In this episode, I speak with Corky, who came to Mar as a patient almost 17 years ago. He was a self-described wreck with a blood pressure of 220 over 140, and he was terrified of going into treatment. He spent his time planning how he was going to get drunk when he left, but then the miracle happened. He was able to find a higher power, and after staying at Mar for five months, returned to his life with a newfound freedom better than anything he had experienced even before he began drinking. He starts off our conversation by describing his circumstances when coming to Mar. I didn't. I didn't come of my own accord. I didn't become come because I wanted to get sober. I recognized that I was an alcoholic, but I did not think that there was any chance I could live a sober life of recovery. And truthfully, I didn't even really understand what that meant. Uh, so I came because my family. Uh, I had a series of interventions. Seven that I can remember, and I think there were more than that. And at the time, I, my mind had gotten to the point that I, I don't remember. I, I know I had so many interventions that for two years after I was in recovery, when somebody would invite me to come over to their house for dinner or watch a game and scared the hell out of me because I thought it was going to be another intervention. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, what have I done now? Yeah, right. But uh, uh, I, I, so I came down here to get them off my back. And I thought, man, I could, I, you know, I can tough nail it through however long they want to keep me, and then I'll go back to what I was doing, maybe a little bit better at what I was doing, which mm-hmm. was which was drinking. Uh, and so it it took a, a, a significant amount of time before I began to recognize that I uh, I would like to live a life of recovery and sobriety. Mm-hmm. So had you had you gone to treatment before? I had not. Okay. I, I had not gone to treatment and had not been to an AA meeting. Um, I, I had no intention. I had no desire to get uh, to get sober. And um, when I, when I arrived here, uh, my blood pressure was was two hundred and twenty over one hundred and forty. Um, I was a, a wreck. Um, Health-wise, mentally, I I was just almost non-functional. Fortunately, I I was able to do my job up to that point because it was a matter of repetition. I'd done it and done it and done it, and so that went well. But I had gotten to the point where I had defined myself only by my profession. I had given up every other aspect of my personality. I, I used to love to. <clears throat> spend some time in the outdoors and backpack, kayak, scuba dive, and those were passions of mine that I had to give up because it got in the way of my drinking. And as I drank more and more, which my my drink of choice was Listerine, mm. uh, and I would uh, work until four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon, and then I would start drinking. Uh, so why Listerine. why Listerine? Because it was easy to get away with. It was easy to hide. People didn't expect a dentist to not have fresh breath. So I could carry it with me uh, in my truck or have it at home, and nobody suspected But it's, uh, it's, it's high in alcohol content. Now, I also drank as much of any other alcohol that I could get my hands on at, at times when, when I could. Uh, and I began to isolate, uh, isolated uh, to the point where I would finish up at my office at 4.30 or 5 and not come home till about 7.30. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and only then came home just b- because I, I felt like I had to. Uh, and I would sit there and drink uh, and listen to um, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon or Harry Chapin's, you know, just the most depressing music. First day I came in, uh, was here, was on a Tuesday, and ARP was that night. And Donnie Brown was here, the, the, the founder. He was the one that did ARP. And he scared the living daylights out of me. Uh, he was uh, he it was and still is a tough love man who's devoted uh, his life to helping other alcoholics and but he's not a fuzzy feel good kind of guy he, he he was in your face right and I wasn't accustomed to that you know mm-hmm. um, and um, so my first ARP when my first day back was ARP and I thought I, I didn't understand what was going on I I had such tremendous fear. Um, and I'm sure that's part of the reason that my blood pressure was so high, even though I have familiar hypertension. But one of the stories, and I don't, I won't use his name. Um, I had a sponsor while I was here. Uh, I was to call him every morning at 7.05. Not 7 o'clock, not 7.10, 7.05. And we would talk for four minutes because he had, he had space A, so many sponsees that they called him and we would talk for a few minutes, and he would always end the conversation with, I love you, man, and say, I love you, too. Well, one morning in July, uh, I'd been here a little over a month, late July. It might have been early August. I can't remember. But uh, I said goodbye to him. I said, what are you getting ready to do? He said, I'm going down to wake up my son and get him, go, get him ready for school. And he went down, and his son had passed away. And we found out about it later that morning. I was the last person who talked with him before before he discovered his son had passed away. Sixteen years old, fifteen years old. And there was this tremendous outpouring of support. People were coming in from all over the country, almost of all different walks of life, but a large a good many of them were um recovery, people in recovery. And supported he and his wife and so the funeral was on saturday this was on a tuesday i think and um the funeral was on saturday it was on a wednesday funeral was on saturday so i didn't call him on thursday or friday because he was inundated i mean the guy was going through all this this horrible thing Mm -hmm. so we go to the church on saturday for the for the funeral as you can imagine for a teenager's funeral there's just church was packed with a lot of young kids and and different people and and a lot of people from recovery and Robert was completely surrounded by these people and so I but I waited and waited and waited until I could get up to him to hug him and and talk to him I hadn't talked with him since Wednesday so when he sees me he turns around and he hugs me and he said how come you haven't called me in the last two days and I recognized then the power of this recovery that here is a man who just lost maybe the most precious thing in his life, and yet he was still concerned about the fact that I hadn't called him like I was supposed to. That's when it got real for me. That's when it got real. And I recognized that we're dealing with life and death issues. We're not dealing with uh, DUIs. We're not dealing with embarrassing ourselves at parties. We're dealing with life and death. And um, it's very serious. And I think, at least for me, when I came in, I just wanted to learn how to drink better. Right, just to just to be able to do it socially and do it better. I didn't realize the the extent that that this is involved in life and death. 
Then through, but for the first three, I was here five months from the time I arrived to the five months to the day. And uh, for the thir- first two and a half to three months, I was still planning my next drunk. And then things started to happen. And I think I define my recovery as a freedom, freedom that I never knew that I did not have. I did not know I was imprisoned until I tasted freedom. And I started to recognize that, um, you know, from a a practical standpoint, that recovery was going to allow me the freedom to go back to doing the things that I love to do, that I had put off to the side, backpacking, traveling, uh, kayaking, scuba diving, the skiing, all the things, the outdoor activities I loved. I was going to regain that freedom. But the first freedom that came to me was the freedom to choose a higher power of my understanding. I, I had no concept of what that was because all of my life I had been told this is God and this is the way it is. And I never dreamed of a possibility of looking at a God from my standpoint or a higher power of any type from the standpoint of what do I believe, not what does he or she or they believe, but what do I believe. Mm -hmm. And I began to recognize um, the freedom that the 12 steps give us, the freedom not, not only to choose the power of our understanding, but but when you get up to making the amends and the freedom that comes from that, the freedom that comes from uh, a fourth step where you where you admit your 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 regrets and your resentments and your uh, the issues that have that have plagued you and, and and then you in the fifth step you admit that to another human being. And there was just this tremendous amount of freedom. And I think back I don't know if it was Plato or Socrates, one that talked about the man in the cave. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and if he's never seen the light, he doesn't even know what is out there. He, he, he's satisfied with what it is because that's his reality. And that's the way I felt. When I came out of it, it's like I came out of a dark cave and I experienced something that I never knew existed. I didn't take my first drink till I was 19, but I've been an alcoholic since I was born. So my thinking pattern was screwed up even from all of my life. So in recovery, all of a sudden, uh, I recognized a freedom that I never had, that I never had even before I took the first drink. And um, that was instilled in me a profound gratitude. I I did not and still do not deserve this. And uh, I gave up a long time ago questioning why, why me. But the one thing that I have done is I've come to the realization that the 12 steps are the backbone of my spiritual life. And if I choose, it can be the entirety of my spiritual life. Uh, And every time I venture into the unknown and look at other spiritual concepts or precepts, um, whether they work out or not, I can always go back to the 12 steps, and I'm very comfortable with that. Um, when I tell my story, people don't understand this, but some some do understand it. But I start with, I thank God every day that I'm an alcoholic, or I would have never found the keys to that freedom uh, regardless. Now, it's not a path that I recommend that 
everybody take mm -hmm. or anybody take, but it was a path that I took, and I'm grateful every day that that is the path that I took, even though the five months that I was here were the most difficult things thing that I've ever uh, experienced. Um, and I think it's supposed to be. So it, it, it went from an experience I, I was telling Dave earlier today. I came in to Mar thinking of the counselors as being the enemy, the prisoner, the prison guards. Mm. I was the prisoner and I was being punished for my sinful ways. And they were the ones to mete out this punishment. That was the way my mind worked. I never considered them people who were, who were loving and were doing this out of uh, loving, caring for their fellow human being. And then later I began to recognize that. And that's when I forged, began to forge a, a relationship with mm -hmm. Mar, uh, where I feel safe here and I feel like I'm a part of it. When did you, you said for the first three months or something, when you were here, you were still planning your next drum? Yeah. Yeah. So when, when did something start in that time? Were you still were you getting kind of glimpses of hope or a little bit of freedom? No, um, no, no. What 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 happened with me? Because I was a people pleaser, and I was always a good, a pretty good student. I looked upon this as like a college course thing I was supposed to do, and so everything that I did, I did what I thought was the best. Best. And it seemed as if that the, the Mar counselors and 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 my the people I was in recovery with or trying to get into recovery with, everybody kept pushing me down. And the harder I tried, the more they pushed. The harder I tried, the more they pushed. And I got so angry and go so so frustrated that I thought I had figured this out. And then I was told, no, you're not even close. And I got so frustrated that I said, I remember this well, I just said, to hell with it. I, I, I give up. I have fought and fought and fought, and they're not helping me one bit. So I'm just going to sit here and do as I'm told until my time is up, and then I'll get out of here. Well, what I didn't realize at the time was I had surrendered. Mm -hmm. I had surrendered to a higher power. Now, albeit the higher power was Mar, but they're a higher power than an individual. Right. A, a AA group is a higher power than any one individual. I had, I had surrendered and didn't even realize it. And then things started turning around. My whole attitude, not overnight, but in the course of a relatively short period of time, my whole attitude about what was happening to me started to change. And this, I think, goes back to the big book, We Will Have a Spiritual Awakening. Um, I expected the spiritual awakening to be a burning bush type of thing. Mm -hmm. It was going to wow me and knock me to my knees. It wasn't. It was the sudden appreciation of a sunrise. It was learning to listen to people. Um, it was sleeping well and feeling good and caring about my health, but also caring about my community, my, the people in my community and the people that we were in this with. And my whole attitude started to change toward the way I, the way I looked at, at, at Dave and Doug and Yule Hartman and all those guys. 
they weren't the adversaries. These guys were trying to help me mm-hmm. in a loving way. They didn't even know me. And they're trying to they're they're trying to help me in a loving way. And my whole attitude changed in in and and then I saw color for the first time. That might have been the I recognized color for the first time. I, I'd always been able to tell the difference between yellow and green, but I had never truly experienced color. Mm-hmm. And um that was profound for me. But one day we were I was I, I isolated horribly. One day after about four months, I'd been here about four months, we were on our way to, what's it, bookstore. Barnes & Noble? Uh, Barnes & Noble. We okay. used to go to Barnes & Noble and use it like a library. Because, mm-hmm. you know, as you remember, it doesn't have any money. Right. They wouldn't give us any money. <laughs> so we'd have to go peruse through yeah. the books and we'd maybe, maybe be able to buy a small cup of coffee. And So we were on our way to Barnes & Noble one Saturday afternoon and I looked out and there were these trees that went through this park and I had this overwhelming, overpowering desire to get out of that car and walk in those trees by myself and it hit me so hard that I told them I said let me out of the car let me out of the car I was almost in a panic well they it scared these guys yeah and so they immediately took me back and they called Mar and said he's wanting to isolate and Bill Anderson came over and the alarm bells were going off and I didn't know what what it was Mm -hmm. and Bill said you're trying to isolate and I'm a little surprised because you're four months in I said, I don't know, you know what was happening. So they put me back on Buddy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until later that I recognized what it was. It was a transference of my higher power from Mar mm-hmm. to something more like God. Mm-hmm. What I wanted was not to isolate it. I wanted solitude. Mm-hmm. I wanted to sit quietly with the God of my understanding and commune. And uh, I, I, I didn't recognize it till later, and Mar didn't recognize that until later, but they did. They did, you know, after a while. And so a big part of my recovery is solitude. Um, I live out in the woods in a log cabin. I live very, very simply. I don't have a lot of stuff. Um, and um, I don't, I'm not quite like Henry David Thoreau. Yeah. But, but uh, I, I, I do have television <laughs> but i live back in in an area where if i choose solitude it's right there and right there in my, on my front door and i can go sit out in front of my log cabin and my porch and i've got all the solitude i want i can't hear anything so so i have that ability to do that and yet wow. i'm 12 miles away from my friends and so if i need community uh, other than the uh, recovery community i can call up some friends and say hey, let's go play some music or or get together and do something. And so I've got it better than I deserve. But I didn't get those things until I got into recovery. And and as circumstances are, I was able to end up living in a log cabin out in the woods, which is what I'd always wanted to do, and to, uh, and to travel. I've traveled extensively uh, throughout the world. And so, yeah. You talk about freedom. Yeah, I, mean, I would. I couldn't do that the whole time I was drinking. I wanted to, but I looked at it as a dream that passed me by. But recovery gave that back to me. Wow! And so, did you when you left here? Did you go back to practicing? I did. My father was my partner, and uh-huh. I was very fortunate. He was able to cover for me while I was gone, and then I came back and and reentered. I didn't have too much trouble with it, but there, you know, there. 
a lot of issues that we have to deal with. Just because we're clean and sober doesn't mean we've got our lives back in order. Mm-hmm. And it, but you're able to, to or I was able to approach it from a new standpoint rather than trying to control things to accept that's the way things were. I made my amends as thoroughly and quickly as I, as I could and uh, uh, was able to do that to, to, to my satisfaction and hopefully the satisfaction of those others. And was very surprised to see that <clears throat> the people that I made the amends to, by and large, were very accepting of that. They were very supportive, and and some of which, one one of which in particular, is gone from what I would have considered a quote enemy if I ever had an enemy, to a very dear friend. And uh, we don't get to see each other very often because of, he's moved a little bit away. But I saw him the other day, and and uh, we hugged each other and standing out there in the parking lot. And, and he, he, I didn't know until uh, later that he was also in recovery. I didn't even know that. Oh, wow. And so, so you know, made the amends and the freedoms associated with that. And everything was wonderful. We'll get back to my conversation with Corky shortly. We just wanted to quickly update you on something. Um, you may have heard me mention this before, but we recently started a magazine here at MARP. It's basically just filled with articles on addiction and recovery, updates on MAR events and information for alumni and people interested in MAR or just recovery in general. So it's free to subscribe. All you have to do is go to marinc.org. That's our website. Go to the top of the page, click on resources, and then click on the new meanings magazine option uh, from the drop down menu and you can sign up and you'll receive your copy in the mail for free. Now back to my conversation with Corky. Um, I, I lost my uh, to divorce, I uh, lost my wife while I was here. She, uh, she and I split up, mm-hmm. and uh, we maintain a, a friendly relationship. And I have a, a son who's now twenty six; he was ten. And so when I left here, I had to go back and face these issues. A son that um, I had certainly had never abused, but I had never really—I wasn't emotionally for him, uh, there for him as well as I could have been. And I had a, this marriage that was on the rocks that, that I wanted to salvage. But Mar had taught me that the last thing that I needed to be doing was trying to control this issue. Um, that had never worked for me. Control had never worked for me. So I accepted it for what it was and went back and had long discussions with my um, now ex-wife. And we both decided that this would be the best path. And, um, and it has been. It has been. So I started to see in my recovery things working out for me without me feeling like I had to step in there and control this whole thing. Um, and th- that's a lesson that I have to remind myself of because I still to this day, I'm an alcoholic and I'm, I'm going to revert back to trying to control things. I have to watch that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revert back to self-pity. Self-pity worked extremely well for me. And I was telling Dave earlier today that if there is a path to uh, relapse, it's, it, for me, it would be lined with self-pity. And I still do it. I still do it. And I'm a people pleaser, and I still do that too. But what I learned from Mar is that I can recognize these failings among myself, these, these, these purely human things, um, I can recognize these and be aware of them and not necessarily try to control things through it. You're saying you come back to Mar about twice a year, is that right? Come to the banquet, and I try to get down here two other times. And and what what's 
what does that do for you coming back tomorrow? Oh, it's the safest place I know of. It's 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 a place where I can be myself, and I feel safe in sharing things that I might not normally share, not even with my own uh, home group necessarily. It's a place where where it began, and I get the support. Um, continue to get the support of the counselors that mean you know a lot to me. Um, and I need I need to come back and see the pain. I need to see these guys sitting there, and I need to see the fear and the pain. And the beauty is, if I come back two, three months later, and they're still around, and I see the difference, and it's just profound, you know that that how well they're doing and how how great they are. Um, but I I viscerally feel that pain. And and that's true in an AA meeting too. When somebody walks in at their first day and their head screwed on backwards, and, and they they don't know how to zip their pants up, mm-hmm. and and I look at that and I I can feel that pain, and I don't want to ever lose that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ever lose that. Yeah. Um, but this is to me is is just a special place, uh, and um, and and people that I'm associated with know that, and I try to send as many people down here as I can. And, and, you know, when I talk to people, I get frustrated because I'll say, you know, I know this, this treatment center and it worked for me. And I've talked to a lot of people that went to other treatment centers and, and I'm nothing against any other treatment center. But I remain more and more convinced that this is the best one that there is that I know of. Um, but when I tell people, well, you know, it's a 90-day minimum. Oh, I can't. I can't leave work for that long, or I can't be away from my family. And what they don't realize at that time is that we're not talking about, uh, we're talking about your life. I think we already talked about this. We're yeah. talking about your life. Your life is not worth three months. I mean, if I had gone to a 30-day program, I'd be dead right now. Because it, uh, in 30 days, I was I was planning my next drunk, and that's exactly what I would have done. It mm-hmm. took two and a half months. It took until they said... Okay, we're starting to see a change, and I could feel that change. Mm-hmm. And I, these, I have nothing against thirty-day programs, nothing at all against them. But that doesn't work. There are a lot of people that doesn't work. I did not need somebody pat me on the back and telling me it's going to be okay. I needed somebody who said, "You're thinking, got you here. Now stop thinking, and we'll tell you when you can start thinking." <laughs> right. <laughs> That's exactly what I need. Yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten sober. Yeah. Because I used self pity, mm-hmm. and so if I got that pity, phew, I was things great. You know. Any any memories of Doug when you were here? Well, interestingly, yes. Um, Doug was not doing counseling when I was. He was oh, in, he was right. involved in administration. There that's for a right. While. But he he did he did something. He just wasn't doing primary counseling like he is back doing that now. But I remember uh, we went out to the lake, and uh, I did not like going to the lake because to me, it was like letting the prisoners out in the yard, and you knew that you had to go back into the cell. That's the way I looked at it. Mm-hmm. That's how sick my mind was. But we went, and I. It may have been a couple months in. It was. I was getting to the point where something was happening. Mm-hmm. 
we were at the lake, and I was going to walk the twelve step path. I don't know if you've walked that or not. No, I haven't. There. But like, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's just a little short hike. Uh-huh. It goes down by the lake, and there are benches and so on. And I was getting ready to hike, and I turned over, turned toward Doug, and I said, "I'm going to hike on this twelve uh, step." And uh, he said, "No, you can't." No, I wasn't on Buddy at that time. He, I think he said, "You okay?" And I said, "You want to go with me?" And he said, "Yeah." Which I, I didn't expect that, and I didn't want him to go with me. But <laughs> but I opened my big mouth. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he said, yeah. So we walked this path, and I kept waiting for it. I kept waiting for the counseling and the advice and the big brother advice and, and all this. But he didn't do that. He didn't say a word. We just walked. And we sat down on a bench and looked out over the lake, and then we got up and we walked. And I don't think that a word was spoken. And it was as if two friends, uh, two men who love one another, were walking through the woods. I didn't feel inferior to him. I didn't feel like a, a client or a patient or that he was my counselor. It was just two guys who were just enjoying one another's company walking through the woods. And I said something to him later after I'd been in recovery for a few years, and I asked him if he remembered that, and he said, yeah, I remember that. I said, did you do that intentionally? You know, just not say anything, just said, and he said, no, I didn't. He said, I, I, I remember us walking, but he said, I don't remember that much about it, but he said, no, I was just, I mean, you just wanted to go for a walk, and I thought that was a good idea. So that was profound for me, is the idea. I felt, I felt human. I, I felt like I was going to be okay. Yeah, like yeah, and I like that he saw you just as another person, as another person, yeah, not right. as a client or anything yeah, like right. that, right. or as a sick, sick, sick individual. Right, he saw me as just a friend. His friend wants to go walk in the woods. Okay? Yeah, if there's one thing that you could pass on to people who are listening, what would it be? When it's all said and done, we're just walking each other home. I like that. I heard that somewhere. I wish I'd made that. I'm not that that clever. Thanks for listening to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Our show is co-produced by Angela Edmonds and our executive producer is David Tate. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.